Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. Swift Trust is an idea from like workplace psychology about teams that come together quickly, counterintuitively, often build higher levels of trust and do it with very little structure. And it turns out that actually the coming together quickly and the less structure are themselves some of the conditions that can help. It turns out that those are the kind of conditions that are often true in software development. It's clear what you're working on. Everyone has a role. There's time involved, like some sense of timing. A lot of times those conditions are available to you, but maybe not being used. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. You know, one of the common criticisms that remote first teams and companies can often get is, well, I don't trust my team. How do I know what they're doing? How do I monitor results and output and all of these other things? But what if remote first teams were actually an opportunity to create more trust or higher trust in your engineering organization? That's the thesis and perspective that we explore in this conversation with Sarah Milstein, VP of Engineering at Daily. And in this conversation, we discuss how remote work is actually an opportunity to create higher trust. We get into different non-obvious communication practices that benefit remote orgs, some strategies for having hard conversations remotely, different facilitation strategies for large group conversations, some practices to help you reduce internal politics. And we also talk about creating swift trust, and we explore a different way to think about and model salary and promotions. Let me introduce you to Sarah. Sarah joined Daily as VP of Engineering, bringing 25 years of deep experience at developing products, setting strategy, and leading teams at startups. Most recently, Sarah was VP of Engineering at ConvertKit. Prior to that, she was Senior Director of Engineering at MailChimp. Sarah has extensive experience in media as a producer and author, having programmed, co-hosted, and managed conferences and trade shows, including the Web 2.0 Expo. You know, over here at ELC, we are also conference producers, so we love geeking out with folks that are in the space and have put on great, meaningful experiences. So, you know, we were absolutely thrilled to connect with Sarah today. So enjoy our conversation with Sarah Milstein. How are you doing today? What's going on? I'm good, thanks. I'm so happy to be here, and I'm also in a good mood. It is feeling very sunny and spring-like here in New York. I like winter, so I'm not sad when it's cold, but it's hard to be sad about a really nice day. Yeah, I um having lived on the East Coast a couple times, like there are some winters that are tougher than others. I've heard that this like winter for New York was comparatively mild to others or way too mild. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> like barely winter at all. Well, uh, I'm I'm up in the like the Pacific Northwest area and there was like record levels of snowfall and like in some places like even like Tahoe and things like that, I've seen people have to like chisel themselves out of their homes because there's 600 inches of yeah. snow around them. So, you know, if only there's a little bit of ways to transfer that over. Better distribution. <laughs> yeah. yeah, totally, totally. 
Sarah, I know when you and I were talking, we, we have a couple topics planned. So I know that we wanted to live in the world and explore some of your perspectives on remote work, many of which can be counterintuitive to what most people associate with the world of remote work, but make a massive difference in how leaders can foster things like higher trust and drive things like higher performance. And to I think bring us right into this. What has been the most surprising thing that you've discovered about remote teams that most people wouldn't expect? I've been working on remote teams for about 20 years, maybe a little more at this point. A few years ago, a little just before the pandemic, I heard myself say to somebody that I prefer remote work in part because I find the teams to be higher trust. And I was surprised to hear myself say that because it's so counterintuitive. The narrative all the time is like you can't really trust people if you're not in person. And it's well researched that high trust teams are much higher performing teams. And people tend to think that remote teams are lower performing. So I was a little bit surprised to hear myself say that even though I like remote work for all the typical reasons people do, like not having to commute and I like being able to make lunch at home and things like that. But the trust part of it turns out to be real. Um, so I did some research when I heard myself saying that to understand why would I have that experience. And one of the things that, among many that I learned is that some people build trust by seeing other people work and by having other people observe them work. It, it kind of goes both ways. And I, I mean, building trust at work specifically. Seeing other people is important to them, but being seen is really important. Other people tend to feel surveilled if they're being watched. And similarly, those same people tend to not need or want to see other people working. You can get your trust by seeing what they've produced. So when I realized that, I realized I was pretty strongly in the category of people who don't like to be watched. And I also don't really like to watch other people. But I think what's surprising about that is it suggests that it's not just a condition of remote work that it's higher trust or lower trust, but that people bring different things to it. And for some people, it's going to work better. It will feel, you will feel more trusted and you will be able to trust your coworkers more in a remote environment. And for other people, that will be less the case. You will feel more trusted and you will trust your coworkers more in person. This, this trust element, I think the narrative has been so strong. Like I remember a lot of folks in sort of different levels of management, the narrative was, well, I don't really know what people are doing. Like, how do I trust that things are still getting done? And so for this to be like the, the key, like most surprising thing is that in fact, you can create higher trust environments in a remote environment, I think is so powerful. So like for you as an individual, where do you get trust? Is it being seen and to know that you're working uh, and that, you know, the person managing you knows that you're getting things done? Or is it in observing that the work is actually happening? And I think those are interesting questions. When I was reading one of the articles you shared sort of about this, you'd mentioned a story about sort of, at this company, doing this experiment with Slack to essentially signify when work was happening or not. Um, I was wondering if you share a little bit about how that experiment went, maybe some of the dynamics, dilemmas or things that happened there that were interesting. Yeah, so I was running a small team that was fully distributed in 2014. I think we were in like the alpha version of Slack. It was very early days. It was well before everybody had it and there were lots of norms around it. I had this idea that it would be useful. We were in different time zones. So I had an idea that it would be useful for people when they got to work to just have a like, hello, I'm here. Here's what I'm doing today kind of thing. Just to kind of acknowledge that there were some times that we might be co-present. When I suggested that, and it was a team, I think it was maybe there were eight or 10 of us at the time, about half the people thought like, great, easy, sounds good. I'd love to know when other people are online. I'm happy to weigh in. And about half the people felt like part of the reason I'm working here is I, I, it's distributed and I don't want 
to have to weigh in about where I am and I don't need, need to tell everybody if I'm going to the dentist and folks had really different feelings about it. So we agreed to try it for three weeks. We put a date in the calendar when we said we're going to check in and see how this is going. Do we want to adjust it? Do we want to stop doing it? Do we want to keep going as it is? As it turned out, three weeks in, everyone really liked it, including the people who had been concerned about it when we started. There's a couple of interesting things about that. It highlights that some people in the same situation will feel surveilled where other people will feel connected. It also shows that you don't need to have everybody with the same kind of underlying sensibility to be able to get to something that works for a team. And I will add that having agreements like this where you've sort of tested and figured out what works for you in a workplace is itself trust building. We can talk more about that later, but this very simple example, which is something I've now done with every team I've had since in some similar form, turns out to be powerful and meaningful both in the experiment and in the actual simple connection of like saying hello in the morning. I definitely want to dive into the agreements uh, element in a, in a little bit, but I, I wanted to spend a little bit more time talking about some of just these non-obvious parts of or benefits of remote work. And so I was wondering, have there been other non-obvious benefits of remote work that you've observed at different parts in your career? So we've got one, higher trust. Are there other things that have come up that, you know, maybe challenge some of the narrative that a lot of folks have had, both like in the forced remote adoption of COVID to now and like where folks are sort of wrestling with, should we go hybrid? Should we bring people back to the office or should we stay remote and sort of navigating those things? Um, what, what else has come up for you? So there's things that are big and things that are relatively small but meaningful. So big things are, for example, in order to be effective as a manager and as a team member in a remote work situation, you have to communicate clearly and constantly. And that's actually true in person too. But there's lots of ways that people kind of skate around that in person or don't recognize the need for it. The need for really good, continual, clear communication is much more obvious in a remote work situation. And because that is sort of the underpinning of good work dynamics, it's right away kind of setting you up for success. And I can talk a little bit more about how we do that, at, some of the ways we do that at Daily, but I'll just say that good communication, the basis of good leadership and teamwork, and it's critical in remote work. But there are lots of other things that aren't so obvious that can be important. Like, for example, a lot of times hard conversations are easier over video, which again, kind of counterintuitive. But what I have found repeatedly over time is that if I have to have a hard conversation with somebody in person, there's nowhere for them to go. They're, they're like three or four feet away from me. They're really upset. I'm probably kind of upset. They might be crying. It's just difficult. It's not that the hard conversations, the content of them is any different over video, but the fact that it's you're a little bit removed from each other makes it easier for the person who's getting the hard feedback or hearing that they're being laid off. They don't have to show you everything. In fact, they can turn off their camera potentially. It gives them some space. So there's a handful of things like that. I mean, there's also some things that are a little bit more covered but not discussed, I think, enough in our conversations in the workplace in the last few years. Things like more remote work can accommodate a bigger range of people with disabilities and make it easier for them to work. Of course, there's some things that are easier for some people in person, but you get a bigger range typically in remote work. So the, the communication practices element is interesting because I think 
In the, the sort of forced adoption of remote work a couple of years ago, there was a big focus on people auditing their communication practices to adjust for sort of the lower fidelity of, you know, remote work in having to do more written communication or asynchronous types of communications. Um, are there certain things that you found more impactful maybe than others or any, I guess, any surprises or sort of non-obvious practices that have helped facilitate that communication? There's some idea that you have to say everything like seven times for people to hear it. <laughs> and it has to be in different media over time. And I find that's pretty much true. And in remote work, you just have to figure out how you structure that of like some things you're going to say in Slack and some in email and some in meetings, and it's going to be repeated on some schedule, depending on the kinds of things you need people to pick up. But there's also some powerful two-way communication that you can have. So for example, at Daily, where I work now, it's about a 60-person team, 60-person company overall. And at the end of every week, everyone writes an end-of-week uh, message, which is just a little template in Notion, where folks post what they've been working on the past week and what they're aiming for the next week and whether they have questions for leadership. And people do it in different forms. Some people have bullets and they'll give a status on like, did I actually get through this thing? Did I not get to it at all? Is this carrying over from the last week? Some people have a narrative. Some people talk about what they've learned. There's lots of different ways that goes and they don't tend to be very long. It's a few bullets, it's a paragraph or two. And then we have a channel where they, those get posted. Not everybody reads everyone's end of week every week, but the founders read everybody's and the team leads tend to read their teams. In addition to having the end of weeks where people can see each other's stuff, one of our founders pulls out a bunch of highlights from the end of weeks and in a Sunday night week ahead message, talks about what's going on at the company, but also highlights a number of things that people had in their end of weeks from the previous week. So it gives more visibility into each other, recognition for what you've done, more connections among us, and kind of more incentive for like keeping the writing and reading going. It turns out to be powerful. Like people, most people do it most weeks. And I've not ever once heard anybody complain about it. And we're also not like, I don't follow up with people if they don't do it. People just do it on their schedule because it works for them. I know we, we sort of have built this conversation focusing on remote work, but I can instantly see how like a co-located team implementing this practice, like regardless of being physically located together or not, could also achieve those same benefits. Automatically, we were talking about the visibility, the recognition, and I think the high levels of leadership to be able to be more connected to the projects that are going on. It almost gives you a better sense of, of what's going on, what's changing or moving within the, the organization. I think that's incredible. I'm like, I'm writing this, I'm writing down the framework because we're going to apply this in our team this week. So I think it's, nice. that's incredible. I wanted to talk about the hard conversations and how those are easier. I think from a personal standpoint, I am particularly conflict averse. And so then I have oftentimes found that I, I try to be more intentional with how to approach those types of conversations. And so, you know, when you perk up saying hard conversations can be easier remote, I'm like, interesting, I would like to learn more. Um, and so I was wondering, like, you know, approaching those conversations in a remote context, is there advice you would have in terms of being able to tap into a remote format to have some of the more difficult conversations? How do you approach those? What have you found works maybe that's unique to that particular context versus others? Yeah, so I think we should distinguish between hard conversations that are one-on-one, -on -one, you're giving somebody difficult feedback, or it's a layoff or something like that, and hard conversations that are many-to-many -many or one-to-many where you're talking about a round of layoffs or numbers are down or what have you. So let's take the first one, the one-to-one. -one. And remote work is like any kind of work. You want to be prepared and make sure that as the person delivering hard news, you've really like thought through the 
critical information that you need to share, anything you need to hear back in that conversation, and also how the other person is likely to experience it so you can have some empathy for their situation. That's all like prep you do no matter where you're having the conversation. I think the main thing that's different with video conversations is that you can give people the option to more easily take a break if they need to tell them like, we can stop, you can turn off the camera, come back in a minute or five minutes or whatever you need. Or to say to them, if you need to during this conversation, you can turn off the camera and I'll let you know if I need you to turn it back on. I've actually never found that people don't do that. Just the, the mediation of the video is enough distance typically for people, but giving them the space is empathic at the outset or something you can insert as you're going if you need to and makes it a little bit easier for the person who's receiving the feedback. And if it's easier for them, it's easier for you delivering it. I can imagine that even just offering the, you know, if you'd like to, you can turn the camera off just as like a communication disclaimer you make at the beginning can be sort of disarming for the person sort of in that conversation. Yeah. I mean, you're sort of saying like, I care about the experience you're having here, not just I have to deliver some information, you have to take it away, but your experience of it matters. Absolutely. And I love the question of even just like the beginning of how will the person likely experience the news that you're about to share so that then you can go through the thought process of understanding what is their emotional experience and how can then you in how you present the information come from a place of empathy for that. Um, I really like for me, that's like a, a super powerful question to ask at the beginning. Yeah. And so that also applies for the big group part conversations. Yeah. And I like to have a kind of a formula for that, which is delivering information, depending on your company, in some central place. For an increasing number of companies, that's Slack, not email, but Slack or equivalent. Saying when you will, as a group, talk about things, you'll have an all hands later that day or the next day. When are you going to talk about it? And in the meantime, where can people leave questions so that you can have a really rich Q&A where you've been able to be thoughtful about your responses beforehand? So usually that's a document, sometimes it's a form. And I also strongly, strongly encourage people to attribute their questions rather than ask them anonymously, because it is more human on both sides and more trust building. And if people need an outlet for asking anonymous questions, take a page from Kellen Elliott McRae, who gives people a mechanism, either it's a form or they can DM somebody who's not him, anonymous questions, but he will make a decision about whether to answer those. And all of the attributed questions will get answered, but the anonymous ones may or may not, depending. I mean, I think that having a little bit of a mechanism like that can be useful too. Maybe not that specific one, but thinking about what are the conditions under which you would take anonymous questions in a hard situation and what are the conditions under which you answer I love the rule of attribution versus anonymity and how that plays into facilitating some, that dialogue. It reminds me of the Ted Lasso episode where Ted Lasso experiences a panic attack, but the team doesn't find out. They find out from the anonymous source that then writes this big public article about Ted Lasso experiencing this panic attack. And so when he goes and he's talking to the team and debriefing it, he goes, I, he apologizes to them. He goes, I'm sorry that you had to find out from somebody else and not me and that I didn't give us an opportunity to build more trust. And so like in this Q&A form, like in a really high stakes conversation, attributing the questions as a means of becoming more human and building more trust on both sides, it shows the importance of intense conversations or like high stakes conversations and having them together can be a huge opportunity, not just to resolve the conflict or whatever, but to actually end up with greater trust from having done it. Anyway, I just got really excited to be able to drop a Ted Lasso story. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> always, always exciting. Yeah, that was great. I mean, I'm hoping that I get a delivery of shortbread here any minute. <laughs> <laughs> Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. There was a line from from one of the articles that you wrote that I found really interesting. And it was this idea that distributed teams are often more productive and less political than co-located teams. And that's not what most people expect. I was curious to learn a little bit more about maybe, first off, I guess, what did you mean by that? And why is that true? What goes into, I guess, reducing politics within an organization by the nature of like the structure of how people work? Yeah, so there's kind of two things I tend to think about here. Politics tends to arise from reliance on relationships and not enough clarity about the value of actual work output. In some ways, right away, you could see that in a remote environment where everybody's being judged more on their work output and there's less typically buddying around and you're not going for drinks after work as much and you build relationships, but it tends to be about the work rather than other ancillary things, makes it easier to focus on who's getting what done and is it actually valuable. So that in itself can kind of be a mechanism for reducing political play. Now, that's not, I I don't want to be like a Pollyanna about this. People are human and will always find ways to make things more political, but there's just, it's like the nature of people. But it's also true that in person, there are a bunch of things that support that, that don't exist nearly to the same degree in remote work. So for example, in person, you can see if your boss is having a conversation with one of your peers and they're laughing about something. And you don't know, are they like laughing about you? Are they laughing about something you're working on? Are they just building a relationship? You could see them arguing. Is that relationship on the outs? What are they arguing about? There's like a ton of intense focus on how people are behaving with each other in an office and especially how are the execs behaving. And that tends to incentivize a bunch of like bad behavior from the execs, frankly. Even though you would think it would make them be like a little more careful about how they behave, for a lot of people, the attention is appealing. And sometimes the drama pulls in attention. It doesn't necessarily mean that people behave better. And it does mean that everybody else is more aware of the bad behavior. So you don't get a lot less of that in remote work. So there's just like a little bit less sort of fodder, a little less Petri dish for some of the conditions that really make politics thrive. It's not perfect, but I, I do find it tends to be muted. I love that perspective. I think we've had a, a handful of conversations with folks in some of our, our peer groups where like internal politics comes up, especially like within the context of like internal promotions and changing roles, taking on different projects and things like that. In some of your observations or experiences, like have there been any sort of intentional practices that you've applied or that you've you've observed that help cultivate that environment, I guess that becomes more of an antibody to some of the politics that get present in any any type of organization. But I, we can probably focus on remote, but like I'm imagining we'll be able to apply both. But um, so I guess if there are any, any ways to like structure teams, communication pathways in a way that helps sort of reject politics or reduce the incentive or presence of that? 
So one thing we've done at Daily, this has nothing to do with being a fully remote team, is we have really taken a very untraditional approach to how we structure salaries, levels, and promotions. At the core, when somebody joins the company, we assign them a level based on their years of relevant experience for that job. We have some published notes about what relevant experience means to us, and we try to really keep that consistent across the team over time. And since we're basing people's levels and their pay is completely just pegged to a level, since we're basing levels on experience, if you get more experience at daily, you just bump up a level. There's no other way to get promoted. It's just getting more experience with us. And there's a bunch of effects of that that are fantastic and that work really well at our size and our stage, including that not only is there no political maneuvering around promotions or raises, because those things are all set ahead of time, basically, there's also no incentive to try to make your project shine above somebody else's. Like the incentive is all to do the things that are going to make the company succeed. And if that means helping other people, great. You will not be penalized for that. That penalty does not exist in our system. It's really been great. It, it is one of the least political places I've ever worked in part because of that. I think like when you think about promotions and salaries, like definitely a high risk area for politics to show up and a big area for bias to creep in and a lot of these other elements that, you know, there's there's less of like a clear structural pathway maybe for some people to systematically reject some of these different things. So I'm just super curious, like, can you share a little more about like, how, how does this all work? I wanted to say one important thing about it philosophically, and then I'll talk a little bit about the mechanics. But one thing people wonder about a lot is, does this mean that we don't care about people's career growth? And it's actually the opposite. It's just that we've decoupled career growth from promotions and raises. Actually, we invest a fair amount in helping people learn. We have learnathon days every couple of months. And, you know, of course, we have a learning budget and things like that. We want people to tackle projects where they have to learn new things and teach other people things all the time. But your ability to grow in the company is not tied to your growth as an engineer or whatever your role is in the company. We want you to take off, learn as much as you can, grow as much as you can, and that will be rewarded by staying with us and you will automatically bump up at some point. So I'll let me talk about when you automatically bump up. So we twice a year in July and in January and July, uh, that's not right, January and June, well, in a summer month, we <laughs> look at everybody's tenure with us. And we have a, you know, we have a spreadsheet. And the spreadsheet basically has figured out for several years ahead because it helps with, it turns out we didn't design it for this, but it turns out it helps with budgeting. So we've mm -hmm. looked ahead and we just see every six months who has crossed from one level to the next, who has spent enough time with us that they've bumped up to the next level. And we do have tied to those six month periods, a, a, an intentional review period. We encourage managers to give feedback and have career conversations frequently to make sure people are growing. But we have as a stopgap before those automatic bumps, we want to make sure, is there anybody who we have concerns about their performance or their behavior? Is there anything we haven't talked about with them? Would we be unhappy if they stayed and we were suddenly paying them more for the level of work they're doing now? Like we need to have sort of a gut check around that stuff. So we do that ahead of the six month bump. But once we've cleared that and we make sure we've ha we're having the conversations we need to have, we DM everybody who is affected and we're like, in your next check, you will see a bump. Usually people are kind of relatively aware of when that's going to happen. 
something we talk about when we hire folks. And it's interesting. It's not like a big point of discussion. I, I never get asked about it. People just sort of trust it's going to happen because we're quite consistent about it. And in fact, also, it's less political and less of a concern because we don't use titles internally. We don't, no one's a staff engineer or principal engineer, except for a handful of people who are at our top level in engineering. I don't know anybody else's level. And I only know those people because I like, I'm never going to get to say to them, you're bumping up a level. <laughs> and it makes me a little bit sad because it's a fun thing to be able to say. But it's just not a huge focus of conversation. It's the thing we sort of are able to run in the background and just kind of make automagic raises for people as they come up. And we do help people, by the way, people do need titles for LinkedIn or like external conversations. Mm-hmm. We'll help people figure out like what's basically the right thing to say here. I have a couple of follow-up questions. But first, the the thing that strikes me is like the perception of predictability, the perception of fairness, because I think like oftentimes like a lot of friction in these processes can be like the perceived lack of fairness. When is this going to happen to me? Like I'm in this limbo for 18 months because, you know, when do these conversations typically happen? And then I'm also like thinking like, wow, like to remove the overhead thinking of the how, the why of like a lack of a clear process, like, oh my God, like that's amazing. One, so you mentioned like, you know, some of the ways to kind of like also meet external sort of needs. I want to dive into like assigning work for folks kind of within the system. So like in for lack of a leveling where it kind of gives you sort of a proxy for like the types of strengths maybe that people have or, or the work that they can undergo. Like how do you account for or align work towards people's strengths or like start to kind of distribute like the types of projects that people work on um, within this type of system? Well, so that goes back to the good, clear communication. So we do have basically an annual strategy process, but we're a startup, things are changing quickly. We have quarterly strategy kind of updates where the exec team is checking in and we're checking in closely on engineering and product in particular to make sure that we have all the most current inputs and understanding from the market, from our customers, from our product usage, anything that would shift how people should work and how they should understand decisions, we talk about a lot. So we'll have quarterly all hands. We write about it quarterly as well. We have that process of like, here's the all hands. We have, here's the doc where you ask questions. Here's the follow-up conversation. We're going to do that live. We bring in the EMs and PMs. So there's a layer where they're giving input and making sure they understand everything and so they can help shape work. But all of that means because we do that regularly and we do it regularly enough that when we're a little behind, people start to ask, they're like, how do I know what I'm supposed to do? I haven't heard you all are like three weeks behind on this. But when we do that pretty regularly and people really understand the strategy, like our strategy is very specific. It shifts. We, We don't swing around, but it shifts as we get new information. People can make pretty good decisions about what they should be working on when we kind of give them direction. And our teams are organized around different parts of the product and have good information from the exec level, from the manager, the EM and PM level, and sometimes directly from customers. So they, team members might ask us, should we, how should I understand this information? Where do I apply this? And we tend to chunk up work into quarters and months and things so that people have fairly clear, here's the project I'm working on, and they can make adjustments on a day-to-day basis and can get help from their team and their EM. I will say one other thing that makes this all work is that at Daily, we have a pretty senior group of people. Most of our engineers are mid to late career. We don't have a lot of early career people because we don't have the capacity to support them yet. We're just not big enough and established enough for that. 
one of the things we get from that is people who can take that kind of information, we can give strategic and directional information, and they can make pretty good decisions with that. That's great. Thank you. So I mean, it all goes back to the clear communication. I love how like that becomes the foundational element to help drive some more of this, like some more of the autonomy, but also then to be able to to work within this this type of system. You know, somebody listening to this, maybe they're at a company like very similar size and scale as daily. And they're like, philosophically, yes, we want to decouple career growth from salary and promotions. And this type of system like really resonates. And we would love to try to figure out how to implement some version of it in a way that works for us. What might be like a first step to help somebody move more towards in introducing this type of, of like salary and promotions model? Well, I'll say two things. First of all, we wrote about it on our blog. <laughs> and cool. you can read in some detail how we approached this. Part of what we did was have an early discussion about what did we want to optimize for and how did we want to think about ourselves. And we realized that as a small and relatively early stage company, we were never going to be able to pay at the level that the FANG companies could pay. We could pay well within the cohort of companies that had raised similar amounts of money. We're venture backed, so that's our model. So we got some data. We worked with a salary consultant to get data so we could compare how could we be above 50th percentile for San Francisco-based salaries? And then we pay the same thing everywhere in the world for engineering roles. Sort of knowing that we wanted to be paying well within our cohort, that that was important to us, knowing that we wanted to be able to attract senior people. And that meant in part that they would value things besides money. They would value autonomy. They would value a company that really prioritizes, as part of when we, we communicate with people about strategy, we say, we're focusing on this now, we're deprioritizing this, that means don't work on it anymore. Now, as I said, we don't swing around wildly, but senior people especially love to hear that we are going to not work on something because we've decided we are working on something else. So giving people really kind of knowing our own values and our own advantages as a workplace, what's going to appeal to people who want to work with us, that grounded a lot of our thinking and helped us figure out how do we then actually structure this so it works. And we did have a, like a complete reset day, basically, where we had looked at everybody because we, as I said, we do this based on years of relevant experience. We looked at everybody internally and kind of set levels and almost everybody got a raise out of that process. That seems like an unexpected outcome, like an unexpected positive outcome, like in terms of introducing the process, like the way we're doing the system, like actually folks within the system are getting a raise for it. I think that's, that's really cool to call out. I love, I wanted to just like kind of remark, like it's been so exciting to to dive into this model because one of the books that has sort of set the foundation for, you know, how I try to think about leadership is Simon Sinek's Leaders Eat Last. And one of the things that for me has been the hardest thing to figure out how do you make concrete and actually introduce into your teams is like the idea of setting up an environment of, of high trust. And like one of the things he talks about is like setting up a culture that incentivizes trust and supporting people within the team versus individual performance. In a lot of the things he talks talks about is like, you know, how do you create like the hormonal outputs of like oxytocin and incentivizing those like trust and love oriented chemicals. And so when you hear when you're talking about like this system, like it reinforces or values supporting each other and supporting each other's projects over individual accomplishment. I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is like a concrete version of how to bring that type of principle to life. Um, and so it's been really cool. Like, thank you for for helping kind of walk through like what this has looked like and how how you've been able to introduce it. I think it's been really cool. Yeah, and it was actually super intentional. And when I got to daily, I did a listen 
listening tour of everybody in engineering and I asked, what would you want to stay the same forever and what would you want to change? And 100% of people without any prompting said that what they wanted to stay the same was a culture of kindness and helpfulness. So it was really clear that was working already and we couldn't make changes that would undermine that. I love that. In terms of like culture architecture, extending that all the way down to like how you do salaries and promotions, I think that's a really powerful extension of culture. You know, when you're talking about some of the the dynamics of trust within remote teams, one of the things that I, I had seen you write about was this element of, of swift trust and how swift trust is oftentimes more present within remote teams. What is swift trust? And maybe how to create the conditions for swift trust to be present within your teams. Swift trust is an idea from like workplace psychology about teams that come together quickly, counterintuitively, often build higher levels of trust and do it with very little structure. And it turns out that actually the coming together quickly and the less structure are themselves some of the conditions that can help. Canonical example makes it a little easier to talk about this, which is movie sets, where people have limited time to work on something that's usually pretty well defined, and almost everybody has a very clear role, and the roles tend to be different, but they have to collaborate with each other a lot to get things done. It turns out that those are the kind of conditions that are often true in software development, regardless of whether you're in-person or remote or hybrid, those conditions of It's clear what you're working on. Everyone has a role. There's time involved, like some sense of timing. A lot of times those conditions are available to you, but maybe not being used. And so one of the things I think to think about for leaders in software companies is how can you be clear about those things and be focused on them in productive ways? So I mean, specifically, it's usually the case that over focusing on deadlines derives bad outcomes in software. There's some sense of deadlines we need, but we have to be pretty moderated about that and making sure that we're you know, adjusting properly so you're not overworking people, you're not delivering something that's not going to work. I mean, there's any number of problems that we think we all know with really hard deadlines in software. But having a sense of urgency and ambition and sort of appropriate, how are we meeting customer needs and learning from those and making sure that people have a clear sense of what we're building toward, making sure that people have clear roles and that they have good mechanisms for collaboration. All of that are like the conditions that help swift trust arise, where you don't need to be working together for years and years in order to be able to understand and trust each other. I'm going to withhold a follow-up question because I want to ask about agreements. But just to to kind of tease it a little bit, one of the struggles or one of the tensions that oftentimes comes up is like how to communicate that to external stakeholders. So folks that maybe are collaborating with engineering, but we aren't intimately uh, involved in that process. And so I'm like, we probably need to have a separate conversation to dive into some of the dynamics of communicating with external stakeholders. Oh, <laughs> Patrick, how much time do you have? Like that, <laughs> that's a deep one. <laughs> yeah. So I want to ask one more question before we transition to, to rapid fire. And at the very beginning of our conversation, we had mentioned like one of the important powerful ways to help support trust or one of the things that you had done consistently with different teams is about creating agreements with how you're going to work together as a team. And so I was wondering if you could maybe introduce a little bit more about what you mean by that and what some of those agreements look like as a way to sort of wrap up our our conversation about trust, remote work, and, and some of those elements. Yeah, I think of agreements as part of a kind of team hygiene, where teams that have norms in how you work together where the norms are things that everybody tends to find useful, those are strong agreements. 
And a lot of times they're implicit, like you've just developed a way of working together in Slack. What's your cadence for reviewing PRs? How do you cover for each other for some vacation? Like a lot of times that stuff just arises and nobody's really talked about it or documented it. But it can still be really strong agreements if it basically serves the team members and they like and find those norms useful. Teams can also have very distinct patterns, but they are a form of weak agreement where the teammates are just going along with something that they don't like and don't find that useful. So, and and those can be explicit or implicit. Again, like it can be completely silent agreements. You might not even know who likes or doesn't like something. Because those kinds of patterns are most often not talked about, you almost always have an opportunity to figure out a couple of key places where perhaps people aren't finding it that useful, or you could try something else that might be more valuable and you can make explicit a kind of silent agreement and you can experiment around it. So when I talked before about the very simple experiment of should we say hello in Slack every morning, that turns out to be meaningful on a bunch of levels because it's not just we get the connection from it, it's that we ran an experiment together. We made a decision together Everybody had an opportunity to say it wasn't working, to try new things, to bring adjustments to it. We had an agreement beforehand about how we were going to kill it if it wasn't working. And that itself is super trust building. Like figuring out together how we work together is trust building. And it means you've created patterns that work better for everybody. And it's bringing your focus into the work with each other. You can over-focus on these sorts of things. I think you can get a little too precious, but having some pretty clear norms around how you make decisions together, how you interact during meetings, how you use your tools, and how you what you can expect from each other. That's part of the basis of trust. Do I see everybody else as reliable, as interested in the common good, and as capable of meeting it? And working on agreements like that give you a chance to demonstrate all of it while making things better for the team. So you kind of can't go too wrong. This almost feels like a really compelling call to action. If you haven't had a conversation about agreements and how you work together as a team, this is a huge opportunity to revisit that and to have a really meaningful and powerful conversation that will not only build more trust, but also enhance the experience of working together, which I think is really powerful. Yeah. And you could look at some things like, for example, how do we create the agenda for this meeting every week? You could decide, we all like it. It's working. Strong agreement. <laughs> no, no tinkering needed. But there could be other things that maybe do need some, you know, zhuzhing. And lots of things also need to be revisited once or twice a year. Almost no agreements last in perpetuity. Sarah, we've got a couple rapid fire questions to wrap up our conversation if you're ready to dive into those. What are you reading or listening to right now? I have sitting next to the sofa a copy of Tanya Riley's book, The Staff Engineer's Path. I just open it up every couple of days and like read another chunk of it. I'm not a staff engineer and it's geared toward ICs, which I'm not at this point, but it's such a terrific book. She's so thoughtful in how she's talked about engineering leadership and the dynamics on teams. It's just like a great resource and a fun read. I love it. What tool or methodology has had a big impact on you? In some ways, the biggest thing is I had the good luck of taking Steve Blank's class about product development when I was in an MBA program. He just sort of like helped me recognize that a lot of the ways that we think about building products, like you have a deadline and you launch things on a certain day, that stuff doesn't work. <laughs> and that you need to think in other ways in order to build software effectively. Now, by the time I took his class, I had many years of exposure to related ideas to Agile, for example. 
But being able to learn the ideas directly with Steve and some of the examples that he brought were so eye-opening. It's really sort of changed the way I've worked ever since. That is a powerful, a powerful recommendation and experience. This next question is about trends. What's a trend you're seeing or following that's been interesting or hasn't hit the mainstream yet? So at Daily, we provide APIs for people to add live audio and video to any app or website. So I'm following live video probably at a little bit of a closer clip than most people. By the way, Daily started before the pandemic. Like we did not anticipate that things would grow in the meeting world at the rate they have when the company started. But I think what's interesting is that there's now live video cropping up in a bunch of places that like you may not have seen yet. In e-commerce, for example, obviously it's taken off in telehealth, but other kinds of big industries are starting to figure out where can live video be useful, like insurance companies, things you might not expect. So that's something I'm keeping a close eye on. That is wild. The unexpected application of live video in areas that you wouldn't necessarily expect. That's great. Last question, Sarah. Is there a quote or mantra that you live by or a quote that's been resonating with you right now? I do like to think about how can we scope this down to get it out the door faster so we can learn something from this product, from this process, from this document, whatever it is. I like to get all the dependencies out of the way and get it out the door so we can learn more, learn faster. The premise of that question of how can we scope it down to get it out faster, to learn more, to learn more quickly. I think just the premise of asking that question to check assumptions is so powerful. So thank you for for introducing that. And thank you for creating an incredible conversation. I'm like thinking, you know, we started off talking about remote work, but really this became a conversation about trust. And in the world of leadership, like everything starts, begins and ends with trust and your ability to get things done. And so thank you for guiding us through this world of trust building and all of the dynamics that go into that and talking about some of the different practices that have been powerful for you. And we've really appreciated it. Yeah, thank you. This has been so much fun. 